0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church Podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Let's open to James chapter 2. So if you want to find a Bible nearby, if you have to steal one from your neighbor, it's okay. It's okay in church to do that. So you could share with them. We're in James chapter 2. We're going through a series through the book of James. James. Uh, called Living Faith, and the reason we've called the series Living Faith is largely because of this text right here. We're at the text that is probably most well known in the Book of James, and maybe the central purpose for why James is is writing the book. He is uh, James is the half brother of Jesus, uh, so he grew up with Jesus, didn't believe in him initially, and then after the resurrection, was convinced that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, the Christ, uh, the Lord of Glory, the Messiah. And, uh, and, and he becomes and rises in prominence to where he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, like the mothership, the, the original church that we read about in the book of Acts. James ends up becoming the key leader and very influential uh, in that church. And so he writes from there to Christians who are scattered across the Roman Empire, particularly those who have more of a Jewish background, and he is telling them and encouraging them on, uh, on how to live under the pressure of the Roman government, under the pressure of persecution, of, even under pressure from their own Jewish family members. Being a Christian is very difficult in the first century. There's a lot of things that are not going their way. They're poor, they're suffering, they're struggling, and, uh, and, and so there's a lot that's going on here. Uh, if you read the book of James, you'll realize that he doesn't actually give a ton of teaching on like the doctrines of the faith. It's there if you know what to look for, but his primary concern in writing this letter is not so much their orthodoxy, what they believe, but how they live out their orthodoxy. He's not saying that's unimportant, but he's just saying that's not enough. It's not enough just simply to believe and know the right things. The whole point is to image God in the world. The, the point is to hold out the word of life to others, and so... James is a very practical and convicting book because he gets right down to what does the life of faith, a living faith, actually look like? What does transformed whole people? And we're not just, our brains are not disconnected from our bodies, our hearts are not not disconnected from our lives, we are whole people. And when we say we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to believe with our mind and with our hearts, with our hands, with our calendars, with our money. With our time, with our relationships, if we believe and love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we are getting the idea of what living faith is really about that it's a whole life endeavor of trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So let's look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Let's read it. And uh, we're coming out of a section where he's talked about partiality, that that really is incompatible with Christian faith and Christian community. And so our, our, our text today, we're titling this message, Two Kinds of Faith, because he's going to contrast dead faith with living faith. And here we go, verses 14 through 26. I'll read it. It should be on the screen as well. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled... was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them on by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding his word. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to to know and read your word. And as we read this passage that has tripped up many over the years, that has been warped and misunderstood and actually worked against the gospel in some ways. God, help us to get it right. Help us to not dismiss it. Help us to take it and internalize it. And we pray, God, that it would bear fruit in our lives. I also just pray for Scott as he preaches at Redemption Church uh, today. And for Bob as he preaches down at Cascade Road Baptist Church. God, thank you that we can, can, uh, can serve other bodies of Christ and be part of a mission beyond ourselves. We pray for both of those men as they... Uh, feed your people your word in another place today as an extension of our ministry. Thank you for their good work there, and we pray that those people would be helped and that they would speak your word well today. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so James is contrasting two kinds of faith. He's going to give us a a, a criminal profile, so to speak. He's going to give us a profile of two different kinds of faith. He's going to call one dead faith. He's going to call one living faith. And what the conclusion will be is that dead faith doesn't work. Dead faith doesn't work. It doesn't work literally because you can't see it. It doesn't transform. It doesn't produce any acts of godliness or love. Dead faith doesn't work socially. It doesn't benefit anyone else. Dead faith doesn't work spiritually. It won't get you into heaven. So reject it and repent of it. That's going to be his first point. Reject dead faith because it doesn't work. Literally, socially, spiritually. Reject it and repent of it. The second profile of faith that we're going to see it's kind of a photo negative of this. He's focusing in on bad faith, but we can then make some conclusions about the faith he is commending, which is living faith, is that living faith does work. Living faith works literally. You'll be able to see the people's faith by how they live, their transformed lives and their acts of love. Living faith works socially. Other people benefit from that. Living faith works spiritually. It's the kind of faith that actually does know God and actually does save. So therefore, embrace and embody living faith. Got it? I could probably just close in prayer right now. I just summarized the text. But, you know, that's, I've got a lot more to say. So let's look at point number one there. Dead faith doesn't work. It doesn't work literally, socially, or spiritually. Therefore, we're to reject and repent of it. And listen to the things that he describes in the text. Look at verse 14. He says, dead faith is not good. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? The implied answer is, it's not good. Secondly, also in verse 14, dead faith is not saving. He says, can that kind of faith save him? The implied answer would be, no, that's not a saving faith. Verse 18, dead faith is invisible. Listen to the argument. He makes up kind of this uh, this person. Someone will say, he's like, I can already feel the objections coming to the person. So he kind of makes up this person to argue with. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. It's like, how how do you see faith? How How do you see it? How would I know that you have faith? How would you convince me that you have genuine faith? Without doing things, without doing things that you wouldn't naturally do yourself, things you would not naturally be inclined to do. How do I know you have a new heart? How do I know that you have the Holy Spirit within you? How do I know Jesus is Lord if you're just doing the things that you would do anyway? But if you have a new heart and you have a new life and you have the Holy Spirit and you're under the Lordship of Christ, then obviously you're going to be doing things that he wants, he desires. And we'll see that. We'll be able to see that. You could go to Hebrews chapter 11 where he talks about the hall of faith, right? And if you read through that passage, it says, By faith so-and-so did what? So, by faith so-and-so did this. By faith so-and-so did this. The point being is that you can see genuine faith. You can see it in action, in life. It's one thing to say you believe in parachutes. It's a whole other thing to put one on and jump out. To do works, right? Anyone can say it. Not, any, not everyone um, lives it out. So true faith is an action. Okay. Dead faith is invisible. I just said that. You have faith. I have works. Show me. The idea. Make it visible. Prove to me that you have genuine faith. Number four. Dead faith is foolish. Look at verse 20. You want to be shown? Oh, you foolish person. <laughs> Oof. It is foolish. To think of this dead, inactive faith. You foolish person that faith from works is useless. Also in that same verse, dead faith is not useful. It's not useful to you. It's not useful to anyone else. This is not a faith that works at all. And dead faith is unjustified. And the way James is going to use the word justified here is he means verified. He's not talking about, we'll get to this in just a second, as we, we see what looks like a contradiction in Paul. Is actually they're using the word justified differently. He's using the word in terms in justified as in verified, proved, vindicated. The claim is proven. You can see it on the outside. So dead faith is unjustified. So it doesn't work. This kind of faith, which is really no faith at all, is not good, not saving, invisible, foolish, not useful, unjustified, reject it. Repent of it. Go a different direction. Now we could then, then for, there, therefore look at what we would call living faith. Living faith does work. It works literally, socially, spiritually, so we should embrace and embody it. Reject dead faith, embrace living faith. By contrast, then, we could go ahead and just line the two up together. He would then, then be saying that there is a kind of faith that is good, that there is a kind of faith that is saving, that there is a kind of faith that is visible, there's the kind of faith that is wise and useful, and justified, vindicated, proven, visible. And that's the kind of faith he wants us to embrace. So then what he does is he's already made moral judgments on these two. One is two kinds of faith that I see Christians already by whatever late 40s or so when this book is written. This is one of probably the first actual Scripture, New Testament Scriptures that are put to pen. And so he's writing, and already the Christians, just 10 or 15 years into the Christian movement, are already beginning to be confused about what it looks like to be saved by grace, what that looks like. And so he's already going, hey, you need to understand that uh, that there is already some counterfeit faith kind of hanging out there, a false faith, a dead faith, that's merely a confession but not actually a life that's lived of conviction. He gives four persuasive illustrations. Four persuasive illustrations here. Is that what I put up there? Or case studies. There you go. I sometimes write different things in different places. So number one, dead faith fails the horizontal test of service. Dead faith will fail the horizontal test of service. And he starts with a needy brother. He did that in the beginning of chapter two. He did that at the beginning when he's like, partiality, a rich man and a poor man walk in. Which one do you prefer and which one does the gospel compel you to love, right? That that's a test, partiality is a test to whether or not the gospel really has taken root in your life. So he brings that needy brother back. Let's say you have received him in the way that the beginning of the chapter talks about. You haven't shown partiality. Well, now he's here, or she, and they have a need. Here's what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Then he gives this this case study here, this illustration. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food... And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well filled, without giving them the things that they needed for the body, what good is that? His conclusion is, that's evidence of a dead faith. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So, it's good. You should welcome the needy brother in. You should welcome the needy sister in. But actually, Christianity compels you to go farther than that and actually love them. Actually provide for their needs. Because what we do when we gather together is we pray things like the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. And it's possible that the daily bread that Alex needs today might be in my pantry, right? It's the idea of, like, God is answering that prayer with us. He's answering and providing for our needs. Do you need some bread, Alex? You're okay. Okay, okay. I like to pick on Alex. He can roll with it. Dead faith fails the horizontal test of service, the needy brother, the needy sister. That's a test. That's a test. Like at the beginning of James 2, like I said, it's a uniquely Christian response that we're called to. Notice that it says, if a brother or sister. So this is not just every single homeless person out on the street. This is not just necessarily anyone you encounter. God may call you to do that, but you're you're not obligated necessarily that every person holding a sign at the intersection must have your money at that moment. That's not what it's saying. It's saying the needy brother or sister, which it's talking about the Christian community, it's talking about the family. So practically for redeeming grace, that would mean that if you come into membership in this church, you now are sharing in the responsibility of caring for the other members in this church. Not just anyone that happens to walk in or show up on Sundays, but those who identify themselves as a brother and sister in this family. That's part of why we have our members actually vote on new members is because they're making a commitment to love that person. That that person, if they have a need, I have a responsibility. They have a claim on me, right? Just like with my own kids, right? My kids have a, have a reasonable expectation that I will provide shelter for them. And I do that every day. I don't get to take a day off from that unless I give them to grandma or something, right? But this idea of like their family, I have a responsibility to care for them and in the Christian community, he's saying is that you can't receive someone into your, commu- your Christian community who you now identify as brother and sister. You're now in a committed relationship where they can make a reasonable claim on you and you have a responsibility to help meet that need. That's part of this. He's like, basically, if someone comes to you and they have a, n- a physical need, you have a responsibility. You can't just do this. You can't just, oh, you've been through so much. Come on, friends, let's all gather around and lay hands on this person. Let's pray for them and then just walk away. If they need a ride, they need a sandwich, they need some help. James says that's total garbage if it's just dismissive sort of well-wishing. And that's kind of what he's getting at. This is not to diminish prayer in any way. But if all we do is say, go in peace, be warm and well-filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So this is not... This is not to diminish prayer in any way, but sometimes, and we already see it right here, within a couple of decades of the church starting, that we'll sometimes use prayer and platitudes to shirk our responsibilities and the opportunities that God puts in front of us. That's exactly what he's saying there, and we're all guilty of that. We're all guilty of that. So, he gives this case study that dead faith will fail the horizontal brotherly love test of the needy brother. But dead faith also fails the vertical test of submission, submission to God as king. Think of the orthodox demon in verse number 19 who has really good theology. Here's what he says. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well, that's good, that's in the Shema, that's fundamental. Fundamental to Christianity is believing in God. You believe that God is one, good, you do well, but you don't actually get a lot of credit for that because demons believe that. Demons believe Jesus rose from the dead. Demons believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Demons have excellent theology, but it doesn't cause them to worship, it causes them to shudder. And this is meant to be a bit of an indictment, is that you're, you're sitting there claiming to be Christian, a Christian because you embrace mentally things that even demons embrace that. And at least they have a reaction, you're just sitting there, you don't do anything. At least they shudder. You're just totally indifferent. That's kind of the indictment here. So dead faith fails the vertical test of submission, of actually demons don't, bully, don't obey God. They disobey God. And so the vertical test of seeing oneself as submitted to God and doing whatever it is he calls us to do. So at least the demon shudders. You don't even shudder. You claim good theology. You can, you can recite the Apostles' Creed. You can quote Scripture. But man, you don't even shudder like... That's a dead faith. Dead faith fails the horizontal test of love and service to each other, fails the vertical test of submission and worship to God. This is not to say that right beliefs don't matter, but unless they're embraced and you have the new birth through regeneration, they're dead. Then we switch to a living faith. So he goes, okay, the idea, the call to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength... The dead faith fails on that level. The love your neighbor as yourself, the dead faith fails on that level, on a real practical level. Living faith, by contrast, passes the vertical test of submission. Let me give you the example of Abraham. Abraham was called by God back in Genesis chapter 12. God said, I will make a great nation of you and your, you and your wife. You will have a son. He's 75, she's 60. Kids really are not likely at that point, and yet God promises them a child and they walk by faith. In, um, in Genesis chapter 15, uh, God, tells, um, God tells Abraham to number the stars of the sky and says, your descendants will be like that. And Abraham believes God and it says that God credited to him his righteousness. He was justified at that moment, meaning he was, he was declared righteous by God at that moment. Fast forward a long time, he finally gets a son named Isaac, God brings the miracle child, and then fast forward another, I don't know, 20 years, 25, 30, it's hard to say how old Isaac is, and then God puts him to the test, God puts him to the test, the submission test. Take that son, your, your only son, take him up on the, on, on the mountain that I show you, and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Now imagine, that's, that's a pretty big test of submission, will you submit to me? Will you submit even the promises I've made to you to me? And Abraham follows through, takes his son up, and before his son is put to death, the angel stops him, and God says, now I know. It's not as if God didn't know before, but now Abraham's faith is vindicated. We see it, right? He was justified, declared righteous in Genesis 15. Fast forward 40-ish years, and his faith was vindicated, justified publicly, that we can read and see, it was because he passed the test of submission. He did whatever God told him to do. Versus, look at verse 21. This is how James says it. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So faith is always primary here, right? He's not saying that faith and works together Are what saves faith alone, but that faith produces something, right? And faith is perfected by obedience. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, that's Genesis chapter 15. And he was called a friend of God, and you see that he that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now think about this for a minute. Abraham was called to a very inconvenient and stomach-turning obedience, wasn't he? Think about that. Those of you that have kids, this is a nightmare. This is an absolute horrific call of will you submit yourself to me. This is a very severe test of Abraham's faith. Abraham's not expecting it, but Abraham submits to it. And he's credited, or he's, he's, um, he's described here as, as someone whose faith was vindicated. That's talked about, like I said, in Hebrews chapter 11, where you can see someone's faith. Abraham is proved to have been faithful. His faith wasn't theoretical, but showed itself to be genuine. Now you think about it, that would be kind of a temptation. God calls you to do this thing. That's the worst possible thing you can think of. And it would be easy to just, for Abraham to just go, no, I'm not doing that, right? No one would know, would they? No one would know. I don't know that anyone else knew but Abraham what his intentions were going up that mountain. In fact, he tells his servants that my son and I will be coming back later. Hebrews tells us that's because he believed that he was going to raise him from the dead. So this was clearly just something that only he and God knew about, and yet Abraham is such a man of faith that he will obey God even in the quiet places. He is submitted to God to this level, and he's commended. And so he passes, this living faith passes the vertical test of submission. God gives me a command, and I obey it. That's what a living faith does. It passes the vertical test of loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, even in really inconvenient, very costly, stomach-churning ways. That's what James is saying here. Living faith also will pass the horizontal test of service. Case study number four is Rahab. Rahab is in the city of Jericho, and Jericho is a Canaanite city. It is under the judgment of God. God is going to bring the Israelite people across the Jordan River, and they're to obliterate, they're to uh, uh, banish all of the Canaanite people. And uh, as they come in and they're exploring the land, they come across Rahab, the spies do, and she hides the spies. This Rahab the prostitute, she's got two strikes against her. One, she's not part of the people of God. She's part of the Gentile Canaanite people who are not part of God's people. Secondly, she's a prostitute. She's got two things that should keep her on the outside of this faith thing of this covenant community but she's held up as someone as who's a person of faith and so this horizontal test of she receives the lord's servants she receives those in need she receives the lord's people a brother or sister in need so to speak and cares for them and protects them in this city how much theology do you think that rahab knew how much how many how much do you think she knew Not a lot. She's commended for her faith. Because she does have faith in this God. And imagine the level of service and the, like, she's got her life on the line right now, right? She's she's about to be caught in the middle of a war. And she's got to decide which side she's on. And it could go really bad either way, right? If she's seen and caught harboring spies, she's putting her life on the line. If she kind of identifies with her people and their sinful ways, if she kind of stays and kind of rejects them, well, then she's going to be killed by them. Like this is a high stakes, if we thought the Abraham thing was high stakes, this is pretty high stakes service, right? To take these people of God in and to protect them. And she's commended for her faith being in action, this horizontal test of service to these Israelite, to God's people. I want to read Joshua 2, 9 through 14. This is Abraham, or not Abraham, <laughs> Rahab. Those are different characters. <laughs> Rahab. So she's received the spies, she's hid them under the roof, and then she has this conversation with them. And just think about this. This is, this is, this is just an ordinary woman who's living a very hard life in a Canaanite city just, and, and just marvel at the work of God in her heart and her life that comes out in her works. Look at this. Joshua 2, 9 through 14, she has this conversation with them. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard of how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, and to Shihan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. And you will save alive my, my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for your life our life for yours even to death and if you do not tell this business of ours then what then will the lord sorry then when the lord gives us the land we will deal kindly and faithfully with you do you see see that what a tremendous faith she has right her faith puts a lot of the israelites faith to shame what a simple faith right she gets it she has seen what has been happening far off she knows she's not a part of it and yet she kindly Asks if she might be part of it, and that faith includes action. I want—I want to participate. It's not just hey, I, 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 I'm going to say the right creeds and then I'm I'm in, right? Like it's like no, it's like no, I'm part of the mission. I'm part of the, the deal here. I want to be part of the people, and obviously they do. They conquer the city, and her whole life and her family is preserved. She did not have it all figured out before she had faith and obeyed. She had just enough to act in faithful obedience. She did not have all the answers, doubts. She didn't have all her doubts dealt with. She didn't have all her ducks in a row, yet her faith worked. It worked. In all of its feeble and frailty, all of its newness and naivety, the faith she did have, she put to work, and that mustard seed bore fruit, right? The little mustard seed of faith resulted in faithful obedience to God. Rahab is an unexpected opportunity. She's an unexpected candidate to be a part of God's people. She couldn't, have ex- she, should, she couldn't have scheduled this opportunity, right? It's not like she put it on her day planner for February 14th. That's, oh, that's Valentine's Day. I just picked that randomly. But she, she, she couldn't have planned this, right? The opportunity came in front of her to be included, to serve these people, and she was ready. A life and death decision faced her that she did not expect, and she acted in faith in that moment. If she can be in and celebrate it, then I think we can be encouraged that anyone can be if they exercise living faith, right? From Abraham, the, the hero of the Old Testament, to Rahab, the one who is least likely to be in, both commended on the same level of a faith that is submissive and service-oriented, a faith that works. So those are the, the four case studies there that he uses to illustrate that there is a dead faith and there's a living faith that you have that you can choose from. Dead faith, you can recognize it by its fruit. It won't submit to the basic calls and commands of Scripture. And it won't actually genuinely love people when the needs come up. By, the con- by contrast, a living faith will submit to God's command, even if it's really inconvenient and kind of stomach-churning like Abraham, And it passes the horizontal test of love for brothers and sisters, for the people of God, even at the risk of your own life. So the burning question then is going, you look at the profile of these two faiths, which kind of faith best describes your faith? Does your faith have the kind of submission and service that flows from the gospel? Does your faith pass the test of submission to God's commands? Does your faith pass the test of service, of sometimes inconvenient compassion for brothers and sisters? I find it fascinating that of all the titles that James could use for himself, which is brother of the Lord, great leader of the Jerusalem church, what's the title he uses in Genesis 1-1? Or not Genesis 1-1, James 1-1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does a servant do? A servant submits and serves. Submission and service are what mark a living faith. Submission and service. Submission to God and His commands. Service to, his, to our brothers and sisters in love. And I think that we will always see submission and service as a burden and something that's taxing on us and kind of a hassle when we don't fundamentally see ourselves as servants if we begin to have the idea that Jesus really is Lord and has the right to command me whatever he wants and that everything he calls me to is good, then I'm going to begrudge when I have to obey him. Or I'm going to want to obey him on my terms and on my schedule. But if I see myself fundamentally as a servant of the Lord, well, then he can tell me what to do whenever he wants. And there's nothing that he could not ask of me. I have no authority to tell him no, right? Because I'm fundamentally a servant. And there's no service that is beneath me if my brother or sister needs it. I don't determine the scheduling of that. I don't determine the degree of that. That if a brother or sister is in need, I'm fundamentally a servant of the king. And so submission and service mark who I am. Let me address this. Do we have a contradiction Because James says pretty pointedly that faith without works is dead, that we're justified by faith and works. That seems to be pretty clearly what James is talking about there. And then we have um, Paul, having a hard time with names today, getting the right names to the right people. Paul seems to say almost the exact opposite. So let's just take a couple minutes here and look at this. In Romans 4, 2 through 5, Paul says this, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. So James and Paul both quote the same thing, right? Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, but as it is due, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Whereas James 2.21 says, was not faith our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Those feel like opposites, don't they? One is saying, absolutely, Abraham is not justified by works. Absolutely, Abraham is justified by works. And both of them seem to almost kind of like, you're a fool if you believe otherwise. <laughs> okay, we've got, a, we've got something we've got to try to figure out here. Also, Galatians 2, Paul talks again, chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works, and we have a careful modifier there, works what? Of the law, okay, that's going to be helpful. Not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Whereas James two twenty four, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So here's what we need to do to sort of understand where it's like, ah, this is it. This is why I can't believe in Christianity. It says two different things. We don't even know. Maybe maybe Paul is a Protestant and James is a Catholic, and that makes everything work out okay, I guess. No, what's happening is Paul and James are addressing two different dangers. Paul is concerned about Gentiles who are coming into the church, and he's afraid, he's concerned that their part of their standing before God is going to be based on them keeping the Old Testament law, works of the law. And he wants to make sure that, no, it's only faith in Christ that makes you right with God. Make sense? James is concerned about people who already know Jesus and are abusing the idea of salvation is by grace apart from works. Therefore, I don't have any obligation to do anything. He's talking about works of love. That living faith, that to be we, we must produce works of love if we are going to be considered truly in the faith. One's talking about works of the law. One's talking about works of love that are a fruit of justification. James, is, Paul is talking root, Are standing before God, James is talking about the fruit of having been justified by God. They're using justified in two different ways. Paul is talking about our standing before God, and James is talking about the vindication of our faith before people. How can you know? How can you know? Paul is using justified meaning declared righteous by God. James is talking about faith being demonstrated and proved. So the same word, but being used in two different ways. Like the word trunk. Trunk of a tree, trunk of a plane, or not, trunk of a car, trunk of an elephant. Right? Same word used in two different ways. One, referring to our relationship with God. One, about the proof before the world. So Paul is right. Abraham is justified by God based on faith alone, Genesis 15. And James is right that Abraham is justified or vindicated before the world as having saving faith by his works when he submitted to God's command in Genesis 22, 40 years later. His faith produced the fruit of justification. Faith declared and then faith demonstrated. James also is just simply echoing the teaching of Jesus. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Here's how Jesus closed his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and believes them will have, no, who does them is what it says. Jesus also, later in Matthew chapter 25, says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For... I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. You passed the horizontal service test. And here's what's interesting in verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? They weren't given advance notice on the test. When it came, they passed it because they had a different heart. They were regenerated. They had living faith that just responded to the needs around them, not even realizing that they were were giving evidence of their faith. They didn't even know. The The king was testing their faith, and they were passing the test not even knowing they were taking a test. Right? It wasn't scheduled wasn't planned. They didn't even realize it until they got to heaven that they were actually demonstrating their faith. Verse 40, the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, when you did it for one of the least of these, you did it to me. Then you will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked? or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. If you'd have you let us know when the test was coming, we would have made sure to have the right answers. We would have responded rightly, right? That's not how it works. That's not how it works. He said to them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me. And these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteousness to eternal life. So it's not, the equation is not works equal salvation. And the equation is not work, faith plus works equals salvation. That's not what's being said here. What's being said is that true living faith equals salvation plus works. Your faith actually does more than save you. It transforms you into an image bearer of God. It it transforms you into a worshipper and a lover of God. It transforms you into a servant. You're missing. You're missing. It's like going to a buffet and only getting the salad. Like, no, God is doing more in your faith than you realize. Living faith will save you and make you really useful in this life. That's part of how you'll know you'll have salvation, is that you'll see the fruit that it's being produced. So it's still just faith alone in Christ, but it must produce more than just a profession of faith. So bottom line, if you find yourself in possession of dead faith, abandon it for living faith. The point here is not to add works to dead faith. That will be the temptation of going, man, I really feel convicted. I don't think that my faith, I think my faith sort of fits the profile of dead faith. I should add works to it. No, James is saying, reject that faith entirely and receive new faith. Go to God and go, God, I want a living faith. Don't just add works of the law and duties to a dead faith abandon the dead faith of demons, and embrace the true faith that really does transform me from the heart. So I come to God. So so I'm not just necessarily signing up for all the service projects that are going on. Right? I'm going, i got to prove my faith. But no, God, give me a heart that loves. Give me a heart that sees. Give me me a a life and a schedule that is open to people, where I'm, I'm planning my service for people, but I'm also flexible enough to take it when you... When it knocks on my door, <clears throat> give me a new heart, God. Give me a living faith in Jesus that actually produces all the fruits that you desire here, that you call for here. What we find here is that living faith is not, it is not part-time, it's full-time. Living faith is not self-employed. It serves another king. James 4, actually, we'll get to that a little bit later, Uh, tells us this. It says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist, and it appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, what you ought to say is if the Lord wills, because he has the opportunity to interrupt my schedule, (laughs) to interrupt me. He did that with Abraham, did that with Rahab. The dead faith is unresponsive to that. The living faith is responsive to that. You think of... um, also, I'll finish the text here. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills and will live and do this or that, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do, even when it doesn't come in my plan, and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Oh, I'm a servant. I'm a servant. I'm not sovereign. I'm a servant. And I'm submitted to him, and I serve him. One man came up to Jesus wanting to justify himself, saying, um, who is my neighbor? Right. It's almost like he's got, kind of got his notebook out. Give me the to-dos. Who's who's in? Who do I have to serve? And then he gives the parable of the good Samaritan. Right. The man is beat up in the ditch, some, and someone needs to help him. The Levite, he's busy. He's got things to do. The priest, he's busy. He has things to do. The Samaritan comes. He's busy. He has things to do too. But he loves his brother. He loves someone that's not even his brother. And then Jesus turns around on the man. When we're talking about the command to love your neighbor, who was the one who was a neighbor here? And the man says, the one who was kind to him. So living faith is not part-time, it's full-time. Living faith is not self-employed. Living faith is never invisible. So James confronts, this is how one pastor put it, James confronts our designer lives. Dead faith says that I'm sovereign. Living faith says he is sovereign. Dead faith says I decide, I set my schedule, I determine where my resources will go. And living faith says, no, this is all the Lord's. And I seek first his kingdom and trust that all the other things will be added to me. Living faith submits and serves. If you bristle at submission and serving, then you probably are serving another Lord. Your faith claim might be worthless, could be useless, might be dead, might be unsaving. But if you see yourself fundamentally as a servant of the king, then it's pure joy to serve whenever, wherever the master calls Charles Spurgeon says this, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul, right? So James comes at us quite a bit in chapter two, right? I really, and he does it out of love. I want to do surgery on your heart and remove partiality. And I want to do surgery on your heart and remove the self-deception of thinking that faith is only things that you believe in your head and not the life you live with other people. You have a responsibility to one another that is a fruit of living faith, Not the root of it. It's not what produces living faith. Jesus Christ does that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We put our faith in Him, and He transforms us into His likeness. So, if you're sitting here today, and maybe you don't have faith in Jesus, maybe you're realizing now that you have a dead faith in Jesus, then just turn to Him. Repent of it. Repent of it, and ask for Him to change your heart, and then begin taking steps of obedience. The obedient things that you already know. Begin to begin to actually live as a servant of the King. Begin to obey basic commands in the Scriptures. Begin to serve in little ways and grow into this. This would be overwhelming to take on all at once, but just start somewhere of going, Lord, I, I repent of my sin, I put my trust in you, and now I'm gonna live out that faith through obedience to you. Romans 12:1 and two says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. This is a right response to God. This is a living faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and this really challenging passage where James really does um, expose what could be a potentially damning faith. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help those in this room, maybe those who um, those who might need the conviction of this passage, I pray that they would feel it. Those who, a passage like this might unnecessarily... Um, Unnerve them, God. Those that might have genuine faith in this ro- in this room, but it's just sort of fragile. I pray that you'd protect them from any misunderstanding of this passage. We pray, God, that your Spirit would be doing a lot of individual work that is impossible to do in a in a general sermon. But God, we pray that in you, in the hearts of people, you would be using your Word and your Spirit would begin to begin to do the kind of corrections and healing and convicting and saving uh, that each individual person needs this morning. We ask these things in your name